millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Our guest this week grew up understanding the power That's right, the power and value that Aussie brands, in other words, the provenance, the purity, the innovation that Australian brands have abroad when, as a seven-year-old, he sat down with his late father and started to dissect brands and understand the emotions sitting behind brands and why brands were successful in terms of their messaging. His name is Blair James, and he's one of the founders of Bondi Sands, the globally successful self-tanning brand. Blair started owning and running tanning bed salons, and off the back of interactions with his customers, in other words, his research, he realised that there was a growing concern about the effects of tanning on their skin health and what it was that people are trying to get a tan, what they needed from a tanning product. He saw an opportunity to cut out the middleman, transition the business from home visit spray tanning to making do-it-yourself, high-quality self-tanning product for the consumer market. Today, Bondi Sands is the number one self-tanning brand in Australia and New Zealand, with roughly six out of every 10 people in Australia buying Bondi Sands self-tanning products. He's in 21,000 stores across the globe. I want to ask Blair about what effect watching his dad's business go under and those discussions he had with his dad about messaging around things like the Nike product, Michael Jordan, the general chats, the dissection, the hacking into what the purposes of various business products stood for, in other words, where the brand sat, those discussions with his dad, how they influence what he does today, and how they attributed to his complete success as a self-tanning product Australian-made. So, let's get into it. Hello, James. Welcome to The Mentor, mate. Thank you. Great to be here. So, you, uh, your business is called Bondo Sands. Are you from... Sydney or from Melbourne? What's the deal? We're actually from Melbourne. But do you actually live up here or you? No, we're still based in Melbourne, um, but all their distribution is done out of Sydney. Uh, PR is all based in Sydney as well. Um, So we're 50-50 in terms of our head office in Melbourne, um, but we do have a, yeah, I guess a a footprint here in Sydney as well. So I want to come back to you then about the the brilliant idea of um, registering your suntan, uh, sunblock and all your other sun products in the name of Bondi Sands, which is, you know, Australia's best known beach, mm-hmm. especially when you're from Melbourne. Yeah. So I, I want to come back to that. That was that, That's a, a genius move. Um, But I really want to go right, 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 right back, right back to day one. Well, not quite day one, um, whatever day you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I read in the brief that you're always inspired by your dad in terms of uh, being in business, being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, tell, tell me about that. Like, because everybody listens to these shows wonders what it is that drives a successful business, particularly when they start off as a small business or even when they just start off as an idea, become a small business and become a much bigger business. And you know, from what I can see, your business has got great distribution and, and, and there's lots of people, lots of customers, lots of consumers, lots of sales. What's in your DNA? Like where did it come from? Where to start? How old were you? Um, I can almost track it back to being about five or six years of age. To be honest, shit, you're lucky. You remember back that. In my, in my <laughs> yeah. case, five or six is a fucking hell, long way, way, way. Go on, tell yeah, me. Yeah, um, my my dad was um an engineer by trade. He um was an engineering manager at Ford Motor Company for a number of years. Um, was that down in Geelong or down in Geelong? Oh, sorry, no, he's in Broadmeadows, but they have right. the two uh, two offices down there. Yeah, you're so, a Broadie boy. Yeah, <laughs> ah, Eddie Maguire. Yeah, well, it was actually from the UK originally. So really? yeah, moved out yeah, here in the '60s, and then. 
um, yeah, ended up at Ford Motor Company. And by the late 80s, he was ready to retire. He was, you know, quite an older dad. He had me when he was 55. Oh, wow. um, so, um, yeah, I was exposed to a world of experience by, by that age. Um, once he retired, he wanted to move back to the UK. Um, so we, we went back to the UK just planning a two or three month trip and we ended up staying for almost four years. And while he was over there, he came up with the idea of uh, creating uh, a business over there that was importing Australian products to the UK, which coincidentally, I'm pretty much doing the same thing now. Um, but he always had... But can I just stop you there for a second? That's important. Was it because he thought at the time the provenance of Australian products or the, um, the resources and or the, the ingredients for an Australian product would be something that people in the UK would like? I mean, is that what we're talking about? Back in the was late, that his idea? Yeah, definitely. I mean, back in the late 80s, um, I think the Australian way of life, Australian personality, everything about Australia was so popular globally, still is. Mm. Um, but back then, you know, Crocodile Dundee was, you know, yep. it was a recent release and there was just a fascination with Australian products and people as a whole. And tourism here. That prawn on the barbie uh, thing that John Cornell and um, Hoag's did for free, by the way, to promote Australian f- tourism in the US, um, took off like crazy, you know, put a porn on the barbie. It was just fantastic. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, because everybody looked at us, so it's, they all thought we were suntanned, all oh, thought we were healthy. Dozzy. Totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. So, it's, so he was thinking right back then about importing or exporting um, uh, Australian freshness and uh, Australian, the resource that we have here in Australia um, to people in the UK. And that, or other places. That's what, what his direction was. And he focused on, you know, the things were really traditionally Australian. So he was importing um, oil skin, like dry as a bone. Uh, he was taking R.M. Williams to the UK. Um, so they're really, you know, um, saddles as well. So he was really in that, that Australian way of life. And, um, you know, I don't think he was one of the first um, people to import Ugg boots into the UK. And I, I still think to this day he was 20 years ahead of his time. Um, you look at what Ugg... Australia has become globally, um, is a global brand now, but he was doing that well before uh, Argo Australia was around. Um, it didn't work um, for us as a, as a business. Um, back what, the, what do you think it didn't work? He made a couple of big mistakes. What, what um, do you think they were? Because like, we've got people listening to this right now who mm. have these great ideas along these lines. So what, can I, what can I manufacture in Australia? What can I derive from Australia that people in China want or people in the UK or wherever want? Um, it, it starts off as a great idea, move the whole family, yeah. you know, like uh, get into it, uh, you know, borrow as much money as I can, rip in, mm-hmm. and these things fail. Yeah. What is it that people should be looking out for? One mistake, probably the biggest mistake he made, he moved into a new shopping centre um, that wasn't established. In the UK. In the UK. So, so he was from Birmingham originally, and so that's where he wanted to go back where his family was. Um, so he found a, a brand new shopping centre there, which was – you go back to it now, it's, it's flourishing. But when he first moved in, he was one of the first stores to open. So foot traffic wasn't there. Yeah. We didn't have the resources to support back then. The Australian dollar was worth 33 pence. Mm. Um, so you start losing UK pounds, you're losing a lot of money very quickly. And so we didn't have the resources to, to support that you know, until it got to the point where foot traffic was high enough to support a business like that. Add that to the point where what he was doing was quite different. Yeah, he needed to build a, a client base and build a clientele in the UK. So, so he needed to build a brand absolutely. around what he was doing. Yeah. So two, two fatal mistakes, which, you know, for those of you who are listening, two fatal mistakes, not enough capital to see you through that, through the bill period. Mm-hmm. Am I talking about that? Yep. Working capital? Yep. Um, and no one knows how long you've got to have the working capital for because you don't know how long in your case, in the case of your dad that is, you don't know how long it's going to take to b- build the foot traffic to go past your shop. You know, online wasn't around in those days, of course. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is what, People aren't going to come to you as a destination or go looking for you because they didn't know about your brand. No, that's right. Um, so that was, you know, I was very aware of that as a, as a kid. Um, but he was always very forward thinking and always, it was always very positive. There was always a new idea. There was always something fresh that he was talking about. And, you know, I remember there was a product that he had, which he brought in from South Australia and it was actually called uh, Sheila Perfume. Um hmm. And as an 80s, yeah. <laughs> it definitely is. And yeah, this product, you know, he, um, he was approached by a marketing company in the UK and they came up with a concept for this product um, that they wanted to do a bit of a test on and they plastered this 
advertisement out on some uh, bus shelters around the UK, and they put a a, um, a cork, yeah, a Kubra. Yeah, yeah, on one the of those bottle. hats with a cork hanging off yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they put one of those on it, and they also and that, the tagline also kills flies, and it went crazy. Like literally, my dad couldn't sell enough of this product. Um, what, was, what was the pro- I mean, it's called Sheila Perfume, whatever. Was it? What was it? Oh, it was just a women's fragrance. It's a fragrance. Yeah. yeah well, it was, actually, it was a fragrance. It yeah. was, and um, yeah. So the English just really bought into that. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the manufacturer here in Australia, in South Australia, wasn't so pleased with the way it was being marketed, and he stopped uh, supply to my dad. So it was just because he felt like his brand was being insulted by this campaign. Well, he's a dickhead because uh, <laughs> I mean, like uh, he doesn't exist anymore because I've never heard of the bloody fragrance. Oh, and, that's uh, right. And maybe today could be one of the biggest fragrances in the world. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that was yeah another you know that could have been something really big, um, but uh, didn't. So work your dad was that. an ideas man. He definitely was. Yeah, he's straight out of the castle. Yeah, and we yeah, absolutely, and uh, yeah, we used to talk about. I remember. Um, we, we both loved Nike as a brand. Um, you know, that was, you know, something that I was drawn, a brand I was drawn to early on. And I can remember, you know, my dad calling me to the room when a new Nike ad would be on TV. And we'd talk about, you know, why do Nike talk like that? Why do they use this terminology? Why don't they talk about their products so much? It was all, you know, we spoke a lot about how brands, um, promote feeling more so than an actual talking about the products and features. Yep. Um, so it creates that emotional connection with the brand. And I remember talking about that when I was six, seven years of age, which I think is quite unusual now when I talk to friends of mine or colleagues of mine about Well, that's our concept of purpose, isn't it? Like, I mean, you're, you, you, you sell the purpose and not the product. I mean, you, you, you find out why someone wants something, not, not because, you know, like in the case of Nike, not necessarily because they want a pair of shoes because, you know, shoes are – if you line a whole lot of shoes up, they're pretty bland things. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of imagery and emotion attached to it and a lot of um, purposeful things like I want to be seen as being uh, Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. you know, those. So I put Michael Jordan in the ad, you know, because he's an iconic person. Yep. I'm selling Michael Jordan. I'm not selling his shoes. Yeah. And is that sure? And they feel like they are, yeah, they I want are to be partly him. Michael Jordan. I want to be some part of him. I want the smallest piece of him ever. Yeah. Um, and I want to identify with that. That's sort of quite an interesting Interesting thing that your father was doing back in when we talking about the eighties, late eighties. Yeah, see, not even today. I mean, I, I saw some guy who's coming to Australia. Um, I don't know, sometime February, whose whole seminar, you know, which he's he's selling online, but his whole seminar is about knowing your purpose. I mean, I always talk about knowing your purpose as an important thing in terms of knowing how to actually send out a message or market your business if you don't know your purpose. It's, it's actually chapter one of my my playbook. Knowing your purpose, so um, you're you're talking about your dad was fifty five at the time. Uh, so no, he just retired. So I was 10, sixty. Yeah, yeah I was 64, 64. So yeah. he was there sitting there talking to him. how old were you? Oh, like I was yeah eight or nine by this stage. Eight or nine, talking to you, you, but that's that's so cool. Um, you know, probably grandfathers are in that category today. Yeah. Um, they should be talking to their grandchildren and their children, when they, especially when they're young, about this whole concept of what is behind a product, mm-hmm. the purpose. And, that, that, and so you were sitting there um, uh, pulling apart Nike's messaging. That's pretty cool. In front of a telly. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was and it Michael Jordan? Well, there's Michael Jordan was my idol growing up. I was, I was obsessed with Michael Jordan um, to the why? why? Tell me why. That's interesting. Why were you obsessed with Michael Jordan? Um, what do you think really was behind it? Well, part, I think part of, you know, first exposed to Michael Jordan through Nike. So there's definitely a brand element there and how they used him to represent their brand. Um, I, I'm quite a competitive person. I love that competitive aspect of Jordan. Like he just didn't want to lose. But he also came across it very charismatic. You know, he built teams around him. Um, he didn't jump team to team to try and build his own legacy. It was more about the team. But as a 10-year-old kid, Blair, what, I, I mean, cast your mind back, but yep. what was the appeal of Jordan? I mean, because you probably weren't articulating leadership and loyalty to your team, maybe, maybe not, but what, what was the something that made him iconic in your mind? What do you think? We used to talk a lot about how he used to glide. You know, he, you know, you, you look at the way Michael Jordan would play the game, he was so much more elegant than anybody else. 
and he just you know he made he, it look easy. Yeah, he had he more did. time than anyone else. Yeah, he'd you know he'd, he'd you know jump you know a layup or a dunk or whatever, and he just looked like he had more time in the air than anybody else. So it doesn't mean he was like the best. I mean, we, as a kid, because because a lot of people market to children. Mm. What is it that do you think today um, Blair today in his what mid thirties, thirty, are you thirty? Uh, forty this year. Forty, okay, yeah. You know, and you know, bear in mind this—you've got thirty years' experience from when you were ten years of age. Mm. What do you think? To what would you say to someone who's marketing to children, and or young men? Um, what is it that Nike got so so right about the image of Jordan that worked? What was that emotional thing that they got to? Was it? Because, I mean, I've I've never really thought about this before, but I'm thinking about it now. Is it because he was the best, or um, he's an, an elite player, or? Uh, it was it because um, he's the king. What, what was it? I think? think there was obviously you knew he was the best, but I don't think that's what it, what it was. It was more about I don't, there was something about him that he they marketed him in a way that he could do things that were almost superhuman. You know that he yeah. he had the ability Superhero. to almost yeah he could almost have the ability to fly. Yeah, yeah. obviously that's what Air Jordan came yeah, totally. from. And the imagery and how they represented that was yeah literally it was always him gliding across the screen. That's very good actually. I think that that's. I've never thought about that, but that's very insightful. And there's nothing wrong with this, is promoting superhuman. Like, you know, if, if you look at all the superheroes at the moment, they're all making comebacks, all the mm. Marvel guys and girls. Um, and it's like a big deal. It's not mm. just for 10-year-olds. It's going right up to all sorts of ages. Irrespective of how intelligent we get and how analytical we get and how logical we get, we still do high fives and, and yell and scream for our superheroes. And we even want superheroes at a political level. We look for superheroes in everything we do in our life. Um, and as illogical as it sounds, because they don't exist really, it's something that we dream about and, and we, we sort of meditate on. And that superhero status, if what you just said was to me is spot on. Kids, adults as well. Adults, you need to sort of probably manage it a little bit better not make it so crude as a superhero. But that su- superhero message associated with any product will work. And I think what you and I are saying now, I mean, I, we just did it like, I, I would say what you and I just did was a little mini hack, okay? We did a little hack into the purpose of what Nike stood for back in the, the 80s, okay? Probably not today, back, back in the 80s. And how they then executed on using Michael Jordan and for all those people listening to this, I mean, I, and I would ask you, um, would you recommend that people actually sit down and hack into whether it's, you know, you know, whether they do it their dad like you did or whether they do it like you and I just did about Michael Jordan or whether they just do it within their own business, get all their staff and maybe they need someone to facilitate it, but it doesn't matter. Just have a little hackathon for half a day, have a cup of coffee, have a mag. Let's just sit down and think about what is it that our product can be emotionally attached to mm. or what emotion can our product be attached to and how do we best express it? Because you've obviously done it with Bondi Sands because I'm looking at Bondi Sands now and we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. Um, I'm looking at the colours, I'm looking at the name, I'm looking at the uh, the, the imagery, um, the sorts of images it gives me. Um, how important do you think it is for businesses to hack in to their purpose? You know, I've never actually looked at it that that way, um, and that's you know we going back those times with my dad. It was really yeah analyzing all you those, were hacking those, in exactly and and hacking into those emotions that you know what connect people to a brand. They I weren't sh- called sh- hackathons in those no, days. They just weren't. dad's just, kid. Yeah, sitting around the coffee table watching Michael Jordan having a fucking talk. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And you know, you know, looking back at it now, I definitely picked up. You know, I guess that technique, I suppose, you know, very early on, Yourself. whether I knew it or not, knew it or not, yeah. And, you know, we do this on a weekly basis with Bondi. Okay, we definitely so, do. Okay, and, take me through that. Just because, you know, what does Bondi, it, Bondi Sands, it's even better yep. than Bondi, by the way, in terms of your own product, but mm. what do you do every week? I mean, it might be not formalized. Yeah, it's definitely not a formalized thing. Um, one of the things we talk about as a brand is that we don't, um, you'll hear anybody in our office say that we don't look to other brands and what they're doing. We are very focused on what we do as a brand. Um, we want, we believe we're the most innovative brand in the category. Um, and we focus a lot on innovation and innovation is not just product. Um, it's ways of working, it's ways of marketing, it's, 
um, you know, how we communicate to the consumer. So we we always, you know, we are paying attention to any campaign from, you know, some of our team will send me links on Instagram or whatever from a, you know, it might be a, a Nissan ad or it may be a BP ad. And we're thinking about what are the, you know, what are the trends right now? What's, um, how are people communicating to different audiences now? Exactly what your dad would do with, with you, you. Yeah. And I actually didn't realize until going through that process now. 100%, which is why it's important to go back to your old yeah. days because the things, the little skills and the little tricks and the little inspirations that we get with, with your dad, your dad, as I understand, has passed away mm-hmm. when you're a young man, yeah. 17 years of age. That's right. Um, he still prevails. Mm-hmm. He still prevails. He's sitting over the top of you. Uh, he probably, you know, unwittingly um, taught you these lessons, hoping that these would stay with you, and they have. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of these lessons are part of your success, and you in turn are, pl- are paying it f- forward to your own people. They yeah. may not know about it, but um, and, yeah. but they know about it now because they'll listen to this, I hope. Well, it's kind of uh, funny. I, I don't know whether my dad knew what he was doing. I don't think he did. I just think he enjoyed the discussion and as much as I did. Um, he loved brand as much as I did as well. Um, and you're right. I think it's a, a discussion when we have these discussions now in, um, in our workplace. I wasn't consciously doing that either. Um, I just enjoy breaking down the way people, brands communicate. I enjoy breaking down the imagery and, and, you know, and working out who that target market is um, and how do we make a message that not just brings them in as a consumer to purchase, but I want them to enjoy our brand. I want them to get the excitement out of our brand like I did. Yeah, but that's Nike. all part of the emotion that exactly. we're talking about. Yeah. We're going to go to the break and I'm going to come back because I really want to, I want to hack a little bit more into Bondi Sands, okay. um, what it stands for, and then we're going to talk about, I want to then talk about how you produce your product, where you produce your product, and how you warehouse it, distribute it, etc. Yeah. I'm back here with Blair James from Bondi Sam's, and we've been talking about. We haven't really been talking about his brand. We've been talking about the experience he got from his dad when he was a ten-year-old. This is thirty years ago. Um, which is effectively what I keep talking about, about holding hackathons around your purpose, your business purpose, the purpose of your business relative to your consumers. In other words, what's the emotion that you need to draw out of what your consumer's experience should be with your product? You know, we're not selling a, a little plastic jar of white cream, whatever colour the cream is that comes out of the thing, because that's basically what it is at the end of the day, a whole, a whole heap of chemicals, um, good chemicals, I presume, Um we're not selling that. If we're selling that and we took everything off the off the all the imagery off the container, they'd never buy it. So they're actually buying something that's functional, yes, but they're buying something that has an image associated with it. And um, Blair's been so smart in having the words Bondi and and actually adding the word Sands to it because that actually builds imagery. Bondi in itself could kill it to me. Bondi Sands is absolutely perfect, and he's obviously understood. Right back from when he was 10 years old, he's applied his late dad's methodology to his own business. I would ask you this, Blair. Would you suggest, or would you now start to think about doing formally once every three, once every six months, a formal hackathon in your business, actually get everyone in the business? How many people have you got working for you? Uh, we're up to around 53 now in total. Could you imagine if you just held a day where you just said, everyone just hang out, we're going to have pizzas and, uh, you know, beers or coke or whatever it is and uh, just turn up. We're gonna, it's going to be Saturday morning. It's at my house or wherever you have have it. And um, uh, we just I want to hear from everybody what mm-hmm. they think about what the imagery should be, what the emotion is we stand for. Because if, if you've got a, a, just one white plastic um, container with whatever it is you have inside of it and then you put your one right next to it, I'm going to choose your one even though what's in the other white plain one is exactly the same product. The question is, why do I choose that one over that one? Yep. You know, I, even if I just wrote Bondi Sands in dark black font, why would I still choose your one with all the imagery written all over it compared to the one just in front of me? I mean, that that that's an interesting question of your stuff. Everyone, every one of the 50 people, from the person who just packs boxes and maybe three or four customers and maybe three or four um, suppliers and uh, – maybe a commentator here and there. Would that be something you would think would be a good idea? We actually, um, last week was our company retreat. We do that every January and we actually did it up in Bondi for a bit of uh, extra motivation. And one of the things we discussed was maybe once a quarter, 
let's bring it, let's have a workshop like this. And we want people from all parts of the company to come in. And, and um, what we'd like them to do is have a look around, whether it be competing brands, might be brands in completely different industry, might be completely different businesses in total. Pick out something that you find, you think they've done very well in a new campaign. How did they communicate effectively to a new audience or launch a new product? Everybody can bring an idea to this meeting and let's basically thrash out these ideas, throw them around the room and see what, because generally the first idea isn't right, but by the time 20 people have had their, their goes at, generally it's refined down to something which is, you know, quite impressive product. Then at the end of that process, we, uh, we vote on the idea which has the biggest connection to our brand um, and we run with that idea. The person who brought that idea in is responsible for running that idea and taking control of it. Who, who, how do you, just to, because it, that, that sounds like a very good process and was it like five, six hours worth of work? And- we haven't done this yet. This is something Oh, this we, is your quarterly you're going to do? Yeah, no, no. We, we just... Um, you know, at the retreat, we generally yeah. you know, put plans together for the next 12 months. Right. Um, so we'd like to do this um, once a quarter um, because obviously, you know, any more than that, it's, you know, you, you, it's too much. You're moving in too many directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we'd like to do it once a quarter. How would you facilitate it though? Like, I mean, people say to me often, oh, Mark, we think your hackathon ideas are great, but they don't know how to do it. Like, you know, do you do it? Does Blair go and say, okay, hello, everybody, here's an agenda, or is it more loose? In other words, it can be more free-flowing. It's not your agenda. I mean, it's Generally, these we have brainstorming sessions quite frequently, particularly around where self-tanning at today, where sun care at. So in our business, brainstorming is the norm. You know, we, you know, we almost look forward to a brainstorming session because it's, you know, creativity is fun. Yeah, it and, is fun. And cre- you're creating your own future essentially by doing that. Um, so it is a culture that we've built over the last 10 years that, you know, no idea is too silly. Um, no vision is too too silly. So, so how do you open it up? Just just give us an example. How would you like, – people listening, they might have three people in their business. And by the way, if you've got a delicatessen or a service station, you can do the same thing. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I yep. Just downstairs, I should just quickly give you a side. I, I was downstairs this morning. Um, I was walking through. I needed to get a coffee. I hadn't had my breakfast. So I got in a little bit early today. We're in the World Square Centre here today. Um I'm in the studio of Southern Cross Osteria where we're doing the podcast and I walked past, I'm thinking, what am I going to get? So I, was, I just stopped for a second as I got a lift and looked to my right and there was a place called uh, Johnny's Fruit Shop or something like that. And um, ordinarily I walked past, I've been walked past here for years. Um, I never stopped, ever. The thing that uh, got me to stop was a young lady there. She said, oh, hello. And she said, I love your TV show. I mean, I haven't been on TV for a couple of years, but anyway. Um, she said, I love your TV show. And that made me actually have a look. It was just that she was being pleasant first thing in the morning. And one of the things we look for first thing in the morning is pleasantry. I And I stopped and I bought something and I actually tried their product and I could see that they were quite proud about a lot of pride in their product. They actually were very nice in terms of what they gave me. And the food was okay, it was, but it just was wrapped up better, you know, wrapped up in pride, wrapped up in effort. Um, and I felt... That was really important, and and, and that's just a, a humble fruit takeaway joint. Same with every business. Even if you're a small, small business, two or three employees, it's important to get your expression right. So yours is a much bigger business. So I want everybody to listen to what Blair does and how he executes on these things, whether you're a small business or a big business. If you're the little bloke down there in Watson's Bay, Con, who's got a little cafe down there, Delhi, this is important. Now, what do you do? How do you, how, how do you let it run? How do you let it roll, these meetings? Uh, I think what we do as, as a brand, it goes back to before the meetings. I think, in, you know, the culture and the business needs to be there beforehand, but I think before you can really push these types of meetings. What do you mean by culture? We like to our team to feel like they are all part of Bondi. They are, their opinions are always valid. Um, any person can have an impact on the direction of the brand. Any ideas can come from anywhere. And who makes that determination there, Blair? Is that you in relation to the brand? I mean, what do you say? I mean, who says that? Who communicates that? Uh, well, it's really stemmed down from my business partner and I, Sean, from from day one. You know, when we first started, it was just him and I. Um, and, you know, in 2016, we only had two staff. And, you know, that was 
that was just a natural extension of the way we worked. We, we wanted people to share their ideas and that's built over time. Every new employee that we bring in, it's part of the, um, the initial induction um, that they go through is that, you know, we are a very open structure in terms of sharing ideas. We want to create that, that culture. So it's something that's been building for 10 years. It hasn't been something that we've just gone, today we're going to be more innovative and more creative. Come and share your ideas. It's something that's really, you know, um, been created from the top down since day one. So when we want to call a meeting like this, everybody in the, in the business understands why we're doing it because, you know, it, it fits with our business values as being innovative and it fits the culture of the brand that we've built over time. So when we send out a meeting request like this, generally there will be uh, a bit of a brief about what you need to bring to the meeting. So I imagine it going along the lines of, um, you know, a bit of a description about have a look at a competing brand or any other brand, in, you know, that you can think of, any initiative that you can think of, write some dot points down and come to this meeting prepared to share what your idea is. In those meetings, there's no hierarchy. You know, the graphic design assistant's point of view is exactly the same as what mine is. Um, it's all just about sharing ideas and, and getting those ideas fleshed out to something which is tangible for our business. Um, you know, that takes time to build that environment within a business. Oh, that's pretty cool. So where do you land then? So what do you think Bondi Sands stands for today? What are the emotions and purposes over the years that you've now refined it and or drilled down to? What do you think it stands for? I think as a brand, one of the things I'm most proud about is we set some very strong values and goals for our, our brand back in 2012 when we launched. And we still adhere to those goals today. And those goals and values are, are very important. And when we first launched, we wanted to be Australian-made and owned. And right, that was so number that's one. Important. Okay, so just let's just do it slowly yep. for our listeners. Bullet point number one, this is an Australian-owned and made-in-Australia product. That's right. So it has provenance in Australia. Yeah. And tell me the logic around that. In other words, is that so that it's, is that important in terms of Australians, but your customers, but also um, foreigners in my buy. Is there some advantage buying Australian-owned and Australian-made? There's, there's two factors to why that was important to us. First of all, 2012, um, it was a climate where everybody was moving offshore to manufacture because it was cheaper. Um, and, you know, the, probably the services would probably be a bit easier to deal with, to be honest. So everyone was going to China. We didn't want to do that. Uh, we saw businesses closing left, right and centre throughout Australia um, we wanted to support Australian industry. We were an Australian brand. We wanted to give back to uh, Australian industry. So that was important to us. Is Second, that important to your consumer though? Or is that, is that more an altruistic proprietor's choice? I think back in 2012, it wasn't as important as it is today. People are very- To consumers, I'm talking. Yes. Yeah. To consumers now, they're very much aware of where products are made. Right. Um, they're very, they're becoming more aware- a brand's impact on their environment, whether that be obviously the environment itself or also the communities that surround that brand. So consumers are looking to brands to support their local communities. And I might add, consumers also like authenticity in, in terms of the ingredients of the brand and purity. That's right. Yeah. That, that's that, a big deal. Yeah. And that comes back to that second part um, of being made in Australia is if we're going to promote the Australian lifestyle and promote what it is to be Australian, we have to be Australian made. Mm. Um, there is that. There's no point creating a, a brand message if you don't live it. Uh, yeah, consumers so, are very intelligent and they'll see straight through it. So, I, to, can we just maybe reduce it into words in terms of authentic uh, emotions, like mm -hmm. authenticity? Um, you know, they're, they're, that's one word we can all hang a hat on. Mm -hmm. we, we get it. I mean, we we love to be able to trace the origins of something. People want to see credibility in a brand. Yeah, they want to they want to see that you know what you're putting on your packaging. You're also you know your company lives that, and you actually adhere to those values. Okay, that's that's one. What what else? Australian made. Yeah. Uh, what else? Um, the next one was to be um, affordable. Um, so it was a, and it was a very simple metric how we came to defining affordable. Um, I believed, or my business partner, I believed back in 2012, but majority of our consumers were probably 16 through 22. Uh, they were female. They were most likely buying our product with pocket money. So we're talking about the tanning products in, at the time? Or? Yeah, we launched with three tanning products yep. in 2012. Can I ask you when you mean tanning? You mean it's a spray tan or something like that or wipe on tan or rub on tan? Uh, no, we started with two lotion, self-tanning lotions. You rub it on. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah light yeah. medium and dark. It's not a spray, not one of those... Uh, not a spray you, gun. No, not no. a salon spray tan. Yeah. Um, and then we had an aerosol spray can. Right. As well. Okay. 
Okay, so we're talking. So back in that period, um, we're talking about um, we're looking again at hanging our hat on the emotions. We talked about authenticity and loyalty at the beginning. Now we're talking about law uh, provenance, I should say. Now we're talking about your uh, your tanning products. Um, you're talking about like remind me what, what's the second thing? Uh, so affordability affordability yeah so in other words accessibility everyone can have yep. access to this so there are two one of our two core values actually affordability and accessibility right okay. they go hand in hand for us yeah because um, if it's too expensive it's not accessible no people can't right. get their hands on it and it's also a distribution um, direction as well being accessible we knew the type of retailers we need to be in we're a low margin brand so where do I find these things or where were you putting these things at the time is it uh, Priceline was our first retailer. Yeah, the discount chemist. Yeah. Sort of so then we moved across into Coles and Woolworths right, and okay. Chemist Warehouse and all those. And so I believed our consumer was that 16 through 22-year-old female. I, I, I'm sorry I keep stopping you, but it's yeah. really important because you, you're just, you know, you're being very modest and just dropping gems out at the, out there to all our listeners. So I, I just I need to summarize some of these things for our, <laughs> yeah. our listeners. So, so what Blair's saying is uh, – the first thing is well, you're talking about authenticity and um, uh, that, that's really important, uh, you know, the, the provenance of, other words, made in Australia. Um, the altruism of uh, where it was manufactured at the time probably wasn't as relevant as it is today, but today that's really important. We want to know where our shit comes from. I want to know what I'm putting on my body or in my mouth, mm-hmm. where it comes from, who made it, um, and, you know, great to support our local workers, but I want to make sure it's clean. That's the first thing. The second thing is affordable. In other words, the price range was something that I can, I can, you know, that I can afford. Everyone can afford. It's not just for uh, the wealthy people in the east suburbs of Sydney or wherever it is in Melbourne equivalent. Um, and then the third thing is accessible. In other words, everybody, this is where you get it from. It's e- they're easy places to find. You launched it in Priceline. Now it's in Coles and all those other places. So in hard commercial terms, you've got distribution, price, and you've got your product sorted. In other words, what does my product stand for? How much does it, it cost me? And how do I distribute it? Mm-hmm. You've taken the emotional side of those things and you've hardwired them into the three hard commercial outcomes. Most people out there don't get that shit, okay? They come up with a good idea. And I'm with that with a gross respect to Dad. He didn't do that, that part. He didn't do that layer. No. You've done the layer that your dad didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's probably because, I don't know why, but because maybe it's just a... Maybe your dad just wanted to go around having a look at good ideas, but you you sound like you've hardwired yourself into making this thing work. Mm-hmm. So that those three, I don't know what if you call them values, they're certainly values of the business, but they're three core elements that are critical to being successful. What other things do you think that you could draw on or you could drag out of why your Bondi Sands products are so successful that you could share with our audience? I think... Um Innovation is something we talk about a lot as a brand. As a, so you explain what innovation means. So innovation is, uh, I guess, it's not just product related. It can be any part of a business. It can be the way meetings are run. It can be the way uh, you market yourself. It can be you know, a new product. Or could I say instead it can be, should be, all of them. It should be, yeah, will be. It is all of them. Innovation should be everything. Yeah. For we our should business, be innovating it, it, every one of those three categories and we should innovate in everything we do. Yeah. And for us as a brand, it's about questioning the way things are currently done. Okay, so how do you encourage innovation? I mean, like, it's all. I mean, I have business. I say, come on, let's be innovative. But like, people don't know how to be innovative. Sometimes not everybody's creative. Yeah, I think uh, you know, inno- innovation's thrown around a lot today. Yeah. And you're right. It, it is. You can't just come out and say, oh, let's just go be creative. It doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Hundred percent. So for me, it starts with questioning where we currently are at. Looking, so it starts with you actually. Yeah. Well, and. Yeah, that's something that, you know, I think our we've built that culture again is people to question why things are done the way they are. And could we do it differently? Yes. Yeah. And one of the things I think, which probably one of the, you know, people look at our products as being innovative, and they are, but I probably think one of the most innovative things we did as a brand back in uh, probably 2015, 16, when we were already the number one brand in Australia, we started looking at the way we were dealing with our retailers. And retailers generally their buyers have set buying periods throughout the year for certain categories. So Suncare, for example, which is where our self-tanning products sit, um, they generally do their range reviews. Um, so basically reviewing the products for the coming year. Generally that's done around March. And this is ahead of a... March, I mean, so they would do like next month, March yep. 2020, they would do a review on what they want in their range of products, say a price line for argument's sake yep. or Coles or whatever. 
for the next summer, the summer starting in November, December or something. That's right. Okay. So, yeah, the range review would happen in March. Yep. Uh, stock would be on shelf end of August, start of September. So given that you know when they're doing the range review, when do you need to start to get in front of them? Uh, we're planning those range reviews probably October, November before. Oh, do they do, – okay, do they actually get you to come in and pitch yep. for them in their range review? I That's say. right. And how do you get involved in the pitch? I mean, how do you say, can I pitch? I mean, how, how does that work? Um, well, first of all, you've got to get in contact with the buyers yeah. uh, for a new brand and there's kind of – there's really three ways um, in a way that a brand can get off the ground and get in contact with these these buyers. First way is the hardest, I, I believe. Um, it's cold calling – uh, finding the buyers on LinkedIn or wherever it is and hitting them straight up. Yep. The strike rate on that's quite low. Because um, everyone's doing it. Everyone does it, especially but, now because they're so accessible. But you still got to do it. Yeah. The second option is uh, an agent model. So an agent is someone that will have a retailer connection already. Um, they will basically sell your product in for you and then you pay them a month through the retainer. The agent. To the agent. And they um, yeah, they look after sales and they get a commission of what the retailers buy. What are these people called? They're generally just an agent. So brand if, you're agent. if you've got a retail brand you want to get onto shelves, um, because basically shelves are marketing outlets or distribution outlets for you, Blair's saying there are people called sales agents or something so that, like that. That's basically yeah, it. And yeah. th- and that, But they can actually get you access to these organizations who will stock your product. Yeah. But you've got to pay them. Yeah, I think this is probably the most costly option um, because generally they'll ask for an upfront monthly retainer, um, somewhere between five, ten thousand dollars a month, depending on you know what your brand is. You can be paying that retainer for six to ten months before you get you get yeah success. So it's not a success only fee; it's you pay me no matter what. I'm doing the work. I'm I'm making these contacts. You pay me. So So you better find out. You better get a bloody good agent. Yes, one you trust. It's not just rotting you. Yeah, yeah. The third option, which we've used to build our brand rapidly, um, is a um, full-service distribution aid um, company. So what they do is they have the retailer contacts, uh, so they have good relationships with those buyers, which is what you need. Um, they actually buy your stock um, in bulk, but what they'll do is they'll set up the meetings for you. They'll go to the meetings with you, um, and then once they've got distribution secured through the retailer, they then buy your stock in bulk. Yes, you make less money through the distribution, but there's a lot less risk um, in terms of, and it's a lot easier to manage your cash flow. Yeah, because you know what your margin is, and you know what you're going to, you know what you have sold. Yeah, you manufactured to what you've already sold. Can you do that? Is that how it works? Like in other words, you've you sell ten thousand units, so therefore you go and, you go and manufacture ten thousand units. Uh, in in the beginning, yes. Yep. Um, obviously, as your brand grows, you need to make sure that forecast is in place, so you yep. are manufacturing to account for the growth that's going to come from the. Yeah, the future twelve months, um, but that's that's the model that we've used from day one, um, and we stumbled across it. To be honest, um, yeah, we didn't know anything about distribution when we started. We didn't know much about retail or any of that in the beginning. We were very close to going down the line of using an agent because we were desperate to get our product out there, um, and we stumbled across our distributor, which is based in uh, Punchbowl here in um, Sydney. Good old Punchbowl. Yeah, I, I grew up there. I saw that actually. I love yeah. that joint. <laughs> Average uh, price of a house there now one point two million. I can't believe it. My dad sold his house for forty thousand dollars. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, we we stumbled across that that relationship, and it's still a relationship that we, we hold today. Um, we have a great relationship with that distributor, and it's amazing, you know, what a good relationship can do for a brand. And those re- distributor bra- uh, retailer relationships are, are critical for a brand getting off the ground. So you you basically stuck to what you're good at. And you yep. outsourced what you, what someone else is better than you at. Absolutely, yeah. And that, that sort of makes sense. And, and anyone who's trying, who's thinking about getting a retail brand onto the shelves in of um, big distributions like Coles or Priceline or whoever it happens to be, that's that's a that's a pretty good tip. Um, uh, yeah, and I mean, you're going to make less money, but you've got more certainty. That's yeah. the game. And it also allows you to scale much faster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, which means you're going to you've got to have a bit of fat in your in your Price versus your cost. Yes. And where, and where, I need to go back to the just manufacturing. So, yeah. Where do you actually mean, how, how did you find someone to manufacture your stuff? I mean, build your formulas and all that sort of stuff. So, we work with a company in Australia, um, in Victoria, um, and they are Australia's largest sun care manufacturer. So, is there something, 
I mean, obviously there's something special about your product, your tanning price, for example, or your – what's interesting for these people listening, and we, we'll put up on our promos, Blair's Bondi Sands actually has, sells tanning products but actually sells also products that stop you from getting sunburnt. So he's got – I can see a 50-plus mm-hmm. sun suntan cream, sunburn cream here. Got, he's got lip balm. Obviously that's not make, meant to make your lips go brown. It's meant to uh, stop the sun from tanning your lips. Yep. But he's also got uh, tanning products as well. I can see some spray tans and uh, protectant tan. Um, and you've got a broad range of stuff. How many products do you have in your range? We've got 65 products in our range Okay, now. we've got seven or so products in front of me, eight, maybe eight or nine. So he's got 65 products in his range. So he's got a good range. He's priced well. He's well positioned in terms of distribution. Now we've got to work out how you supply the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And you've got, a, you've got a manufacturer in Victoria. That's right. How did you find such a person? Um, we were finding people in the early days, I think, whether or, you know, finding connections for your business in the day, early days really just comes back to talking to people that are in the industry and trying to find people that, you know, you know uh, that can introduce you to these types of manufacturers or distributors or whatever. Um, we were fortunate enough, my business partner's dad um, knew of a company in uh, Mulgrave in Australia, uh, in Victoria, that... Um, Specialised in sun care. They did a little bit of self-tan, not much, um, but we went and presented to them, basically, uh, what we want, what our vision was for our brand. At the time, self-tan wasn't really growing that much as a, as a category. We weren't taken too seriously, I think, um, by this manufacturer. What made you think of self-tan? Like, I mean, what the fuck? I mean, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, we've been asked that question a few yeah. times. Well, like, why did you say, oh, I'm going to go into self-tan? Like, it's so random. Yeah, well, I um, I had a tanning salon in Melbourne, uh, which I opened in 2006. A spray tanning salon? Yeah, we had sunbeds as well back right. when we first opened. And but what made you get into that? So before that, I was in um, fashion and working in retail. Yeah. And... Uh, I've always wanted to have my own business. It was, you know, I think it was destined for instance, I was a kid. And um, I was looking at shops in Port Melbourne and there was a vacant store there and I was actually going to open a, my own clothing store there first of all. And uh, I had a little bit of money, not much. Um, after My mum had passed away uh, about two years prior and she left me a little bit of money and I wanted to put that into my own store. And I went to my brother and I said, oh, I need like investment, you know, would you help me with this? He came up with the idea actually of opening a, um, a tanning bed salon, basically for the fact that once it was up and, up and running, there was the passive income there. There wasn't, you know, once you bought the equipment, you didn't need to keep reinventing yourself every season. There wasn't the risk of, you know, picking the wrong product per year. Um, it was a lot more of a secure business model than what a fashion store was. This made sense to me. Um, it was something that I thought, okay, well, I can get one. And then once that's off the ground, I'll get another and another and another. And, um, so, yeah, he convinced me that I should open this salon in 2006, not knowing anything about tanning, really, at that point. And um, over the next four years, by 2010, spray tan was becoming the major part of that business. Um, yeah, we went from doing, say, 30 or 40 a week to some days doing 140 a day in terms of spray tans. So we were spraying almost every five minutes. 140 spray, uh, people go spray tan a day. A day? Yeah. Jesus. So that was like some of our busiest times. And so we used to open it, you know, we'd open at 8 a.m., we'd spray every 15 minutes uh, all the way through to like 11 Is that like a, a person doing it or is it a machine? Hand spray. Yeah. Yeah. And Were you uh, doing it? Were you spraying? I used to spray the job. guys. Good the, chicks come in there. and Yeah. So I used to spray the guys that the, uh, my staff didn't feel comfortable doing. Oh, you do the guys? Yeah. Okay. I didn't want, um, like I never sprayed any, any of the women. I just thought that was just, you know, recipe for disaster. Um, and, you know, if I was always very conscious of the girls that were spraying, you know, the guys as well. So yeah. um, that's, I learned how to spray tan yeah. <laughs> through that. But that was, that salon was six years of customer research for me. Yeah, yeah. It was six years of what people loved about spray tan and what they didn't like about self-tanning products. So yeah, stuff yeah. you did at home. Um, so that was really where, you know, I started to learn everything about self-tan. So you learned about your product. Absolutely. Yeah. And by, you know, 2010, I think there was a few factors coming into play at that time. It was people were really understanding the effects of UV light. Uh, they were not just from a, a skin cancer point of view, but also the aesthetic of it as well, the aging message that was coming through. People were really starting to take care of themselves a bit better by 2010. So spray tan was becoming an even bigger part of that business. And so I'd get to the point where I couldn't fit anybody else into the salon and I'd recommend 
soft tanning products or fake tan products. So which means they put it in their hand and they rub it on their skin. Yeah. So pretty much what our whole range is now. Right, right. And um, I'd suggest Central Pay. I'd suggest Latan. Uh, they were the big players in the market in 2010, 2012. And uh, the feedback I, I would get was that it stinks or it doesn't last long Fucking enough. I can know the smells. I mean, I've had <laughs> partners in my past, girls, female partners, where I just could the smell of it, bleh. Yeah. Like on their skin later yep. after they've done it. Like yep. I could smell it. Mm-hmm. I didn't dig it very much. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's not a great smell. And yeah. It definitely wasn't back then. It was even worse. And um, so I was getting this feedback of what people really wanted from fake tan, and so I really just didn't understand why a salon spray tan, something you go to a salon actually get sprayed on by hand, why that was so much better than what was in a can at your local pharmacy. So we created our own spray solution and used it in my salon to begin with. And you know, within sort of two to three months, people were coming in asking for that product. So I knew what we created in my salon, people liked the color, they liked the application, they liked the feel of it. From that, I thought, well, now we got that right. Let's go to this manufacturer and let's see if we can convert that into self-tanning application. The manufacturing process is different um, to you know, normal spray tan. And that took us around 18 months to roll out a, a product range of three SKUs, three products um, that we called Salon Quality. So it was taking the higher level of active ingredient that a, um, a spray tan would have and we put it in a product you can use at home. And can I ask you the, your formula? Um, where Have you written it down somewhere or have you got it recorded? Yeah, so we own all of our formulas yep. now. Um, but you, you do, you, you, the formulas are recorded very safely and yes. securely. Yeah. That's yep. important. Yeah. And, that's, and over the years, we've become more and more innovative with these formulas and we've really, you know, we've learnt the ins and outs of working with these formulas, what areas we can um, we can push the boundaries of, what, what areas we can't. So today, mm. what are the unique propositions of your your formula outcome? In other words, if I go and buy a rub-on tan thing or a spray, get a can of spray tan from you, um, what, do you, what am I expecting from that? I mean, am I expecting it to last longer, to smell less, to be a different, the right colour, I mean, to feel interesting? I don't know. I mean, I've never done this. Before, so what, what, what am I expecting? What do your formulas deliver? The thing we're best known for is colour. Right. It's the most natural colour on the market. So it's not red or – I mean, what's the colour you're trying to avoid? Is Because I've seen some girls who do it, they turn out orange. Yeah. Okay, so we so definitely, with our the dye base that we use, we use a green or a blue dye base, so that gives you that olive tone on the skin. Right. That Once you've got that sort of blue-green dye base, you can put that on any skin tone. See, they come out looking like an avatar. No, that's okay. right. <laughs> but that washes off. It just gives you that, that base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but that gives you a very natural color on yep. your skin. So it's not um, that orangey color. No, that's right. And so depth of color is another important factor of, of you know, and important for us as a brand is to make sure you're getting that depth of color that people are after. So you're, you're building authenticity. So yep. it looks like a proper tan. Yeah. So if you go back to in the very beginning, what I wanted this tan to be, I want it to look like people have just stepped off the beach at Bondi. Yeah. That yeah. was the way we marketed it overseas. Yeah. Um, so I don't want it to look like fake tan. It needs to look like a real tan. Yeah. Otherwise, people are not going to be drawn to it. And, and can I ask you now, in terms of your success, what are you doing? Give me a few ideas. I mean, are you selling in a thousand places? I mean, tell, give me a bit of an out, 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 uh, so, out, outlook. Uh, through 2019, we'll expand our uh, international distribution to over 22,000 stores. Um, wow. We are the number one brand here in Australia with around 65% market share. Um, so we're you know, quite a dominant player here in Australia now. Um, we launched into the UK in 2015. We're now the number one brand there as well with uh, pushing 40% market share. Your dad would be happy. Yeah. You would the English be. English needs the tan. Totally. So. No, but your dad would be happy. You've, you've, yeah. you've done what he tried to do. Yeah. And it was definitely, you know, I think I learned a lot from, you know, his lack of planning. Yep. Great ideas, but you need to have, have a plan and that surrounds those ideas. Yep. Um, we launched into the US last year uh, with an exclusive relationship with Walgreens. Uh, we launched into 7,500 doors across the United States. And we're now into our second year there. Um, so already we're tracking pretty well. We're up about, I think, year on year, about 180% growth. Um, and they're number one brand in store in Walgreens. So the future for Bondi this year is, um, you know, really focus on the American growth. That's really what's, I suppose, where the big growth opportunity comes from is the United States this year. Um, we have diversified our product offering. So we're now available in... Uh, we have a body range. We also have cosmetics. Um, but sun care was something that we always had on the agenda from 2011. The brand positioning warrants a skincare direction. 
Um, our positioning as a brand, I think, can make us you know, one of the world leaders in, in, self, in sun care. So you st- in, that's 2020. Now, when did you start? We started Formulated 2010. We launched into Priceline in um, September 2012. Like, and for everyone who's listening, it takes 10 years. You've got to be patient. This is 10 mm. years. He's done brilliantly, but it's now 10 years. I'm running short of time here, so I, yep. I'm going to ask you. I've been asking all the questions, and you've been doing all the answering. Yep. So, what's one question you have for me? Um, well, I did a bit of research on you last night. I was doing some googling, and and uh, I saw that you know you, you've been on a number of boards, and you know, and you've also it seems like you've, you've always got multiple businesses running at one time. If, for me, as a creative, you know, I'm always coming up with new ideas and new brands I'd like to get into, and I'm worried about spreading too thin. Um, and being able to pull yourself out of one brand and being able to give the same, I guess, uh, motivation to the next brand. Do you think it's possible or do you think it's a good idea to be across, as a founder, across multiple brands at the same time? Or are you better off scaling back that vision or that creativity and focusing solely on one? Well, I I might operate in different brands, but I actually, within those brands, I'm doing the same story. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's not about the brand, it's about the story. Um, and I, I, I don't think for me anyway, I don't think it's possible to build multiple stories. I think it's possible to build multiple brands, but not multiple stories. So, um, my story is the same story every time, you know, there's some small changes here and there for rules and verbalize around the corners and the edges, but generally speaking, it's the same basic fundamental story. Um, so, and then I just attach a different brand to it. So um, my gut feeling is it's very difficult to build different stories and to build all the infrastructure you need to have around and behind it. Um, but that's really requires a lot of creativity to build different stories. It's hard enough to be creative around one story because you just don't create one story, then, um, then live it. I mean, you're creating behind that one story every single day. So it's a continual creative. So I don't think you can build different stories and attach different brands to it. I think you can take one story and attach different brands to it with slight variations. Um, and then build, because it's all about the, the, as you said earlier, it's always about the innovation and what you, how you're recreating and rebuilding and repositioning and pivoting and et cetera. And um, it'll all go well until the day comes when you need to make a change or, or turn to the right or the left and you'll miss it. Something, yep. you'll miss something. I have done that missed it and I have made some big mistakes in that regard. So more recently I've pulled back and I just do two things now. That's mentored in Yellow Brick Road. Um, and effectively they're the same sort of story. Um, you know, one, I'm lending money but helping people sort of build better lives and in mentoring I'm actually not lending money but I'm actually helping build better lives. So it's the same same story sort of thing. So I feel as though it's too hard to do the rest. Um, even It doesn't matter how big your team is. I mean, I've got big teams in both um, but – you still need to direct traffic and you're ultimately responsible for it. So my gut feeling is if you got, if you can sort of take what you do and parlay that into a different product but with the same story, then that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other thing is you're, you're growing really fast. You can do what I said I do when you're not growing that fast. Um, but when you're growing really fast, you're backfilling all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you always say, oh, fuck, there's a problem <laughs> over here, there's a problem over here. Yeah. You're always trying to backfill. And backfilling takes a lot of intellectual time and physical time. So I'd say whilst you're at your really high growth period, particularly when you concentrate in the US, um, my gut feeling is you probably will stretch yourself too much and yep. something will fall down the cracks, which you can't afford to do, particularly in the US, yep. whilst everything else is going well. I just, just That's how I am. That's with the benefit of hindsight, by the way. I have completely stuffed it up in the past where I thought I could do everything. That's the nature of a really competitive person um, and uh, we think we can do everything but we can't. We think we can climb two mountains at once. You, you need both hands on yeah. a mountain. I have noticed coming out of – I find it difficult to be you – know, with Bondi Sands, I'm right inside that brand and being able to pull myself out of that into something that's completely different and then try to create – um, you know, something new for another brand is incredibly difficult. And that's sort of probably what I've learned over the last, you know, three to four years. But yeah, same thing. I'm very competitive and want to do more. Um, and I feel like if I'm not doing more, I'm not honoring that creativity. Careful um, boredom. Boredom will make you feel that way. Okay? Yeah. We can get bored. Mm. Um, you've got to put that aside. Mm. Um, but that's a lot of these, these desires get driven by boredom. Yeah. Creative people get bored fast. Yeah. And, uh, 
it's and it's, it's and it, I don't mean that in an arrogant sense, like oh, we're bored intellectually. Uh, uh, we get bored with ourselves um, when you actually sit back and have a look at the hackathons and all the people you can bring through your business and all. You shouldn't be bored. Yeah. Um, you- oh, definitely not. Yeah, you know, I think um, our speed to market is something that's made us very difficult to compete with um, you know, by other brands. So um, we're definitely not bored with Bondi. <laughs> There's always something new. You don't but- want more drugs though, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and, but the problem is business is like a drug. Yeah. And you just keep loading up. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes just say, I've got enough of the drug. Yeah. And uh, just, just just one thing at a time. For me now, it's just one thing at a time. I've, do- I've been down the track. It's, it's dangerous. Sometimes I've worked, sometimes it hasn't worked. It's, and it's not worth it. When it doesn't work, it's not worth it. Yeah. But I, I have to go now. So do you because you've got to go and run a big business and I've got to go and do my stuff. So Blair James, I, I really – actually, I think this is a very insightful, particularly for the start of this year, this calendar year, one of the, one of the earlier um, podcasts for us. This is a very insightful look into a successful business but also the thought processes that are involved in the business. So I think Bondi Sands, I love the name. I love the branding. I actually like the products as well, what you're doing there. But I think there's this great story about what your dad did when you were 10 years of age. And I think what's important for our listeners today, Blair, is that some of the lessons we learned that we don't think were real lessons, if we just actually sit back and think about what I was taught when I was young by somebody who I, who I loved and uh, who I looked up to, some of those things are very important to put into your business today, as well as the mistakes that they made. And uh, I really, I'm very happy to have met you today. And uh, thanks very much. I'm not sure I'm going to do all those products. I don't know if I'm going to use it. We've got coconut. There's a and few sea there salt. For you to what try. is coconut and sea salt? Oh, this one. Um, it's a body scrub. Body scrub. So it actually has real beach sand in there. But, really? Um, that's the best smelling product in our range. Is it? <laughs> yeah, it smells. Well, awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll use some of that and I'll give yeah. some of it away. But thank you very much, Bondi Sands. It's a great product. It's a market leader, and we've got the dude here himself today. Thanks very much, Blair. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.